Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I've got Roman Sivkin back in New York. Good to have you back, Roman. Back east. That, uh, yes. Yeah. Good to be back. I, I'm really bummed that I missed the last session. It sounded like a lot of fun um, with Heston talking about science fiction, Ursula K. Le Guin. As you guys can probably tell, I have a major cold. I'm recuperating, uh, but I should be fine. Yeah. We're glad you're back, and, and that was fun uh, having Heston. And if you're listening, Heston, thanks a lot, man. And uh, you know, Heston will—he'll uh, be back again. We'll we'll uh, we'll have him, and, and I think we should have the three of us. Um, that yeah, sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, this week um, we are tackling a monster—a uh, monster that's been getting a ton of attention, certainly on literary Twitter. And so this week we're looking at. Um, Uwe Johnson's Anniversaries. And so um, this is a book that is unusual in the fact that it's a it's a, a newly published book, but it's a book that's almost 50 years old. And um, I think sometimes people can uh, make too much of the size of a book, but I think in this case, the size of the book is uh, is absolutely relevant. It, it comes in, in two volumes, and um, both volumes are approximately 900 pages each. So it's a huge book. And I think part of what Roman and I want to talk about today is obviously we want to dig into this fabulous book, um, but also just the, the challenge or even maybe the problem of, of reading massive books in 2019 um, in a digital culture uh, in a in a busy culture, and you know, look. Let's face it. Most of us are not uh, full time literati. We have jobs. We have families, and so um, I don't know. Let's even get crazy. Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it worth the time to read two thousand page novels? Um, Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, Rob. I don't know if it, worth the time is the right is, is the the right approach to this question. I think it's more of a um, are you gelling with what you're reading? Is this is this giving you uh, to to quote that horrendous, uh, wonderful, horrendously wonderful Japanese lady who's now all the rage? The you know the Marie Kondo. I don't know if you Marie Kondo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does it give you joy? A spark of joy. Um, so <laughs> I I've always felt that if that's how that's how you know you follow your literary nose and you get into books and some of them are big, some of them are small. But some of the big ones, um, again, there's, 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 does it give you joy as you're reading it? Is is my sort of my my go-to sort of default mode of should I continue with this book or not? Um, um, I I would agree, but I would also argue that even with joy and pleasure, a big book. When you have a full-time job, when you have perhaps children, um, joy isn't always enough for me to stick with a book. I also need to make a kind of dedicated commitment. And, um, you know, a couple of examples of really, really big books that I've read, say, in the last five years was Revisiting uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And also, for the first time in my life, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, was Finally Getting Around to War and Peace by Tolstoy. Mm. And so I was being fed by those books, undoubtedly. 
but I don't have huge chunks of time uh, in my life. And you need and you need huge chunks of time because these are not the books that you can sort of read one paragraph no. here, one page there. But 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 I don't. So I would have to make commitments. Okay, it's Saturday morning. I've woken up. You know, I'm going to have breakfast, chat with my wife, and then for two and a half hours, I'm going to kind of go into my my study and just read. And so it has to be. And so, it, yes, I received joy and pleasure, but it also had to be a commitment. So, right, but but don't you think that in general, reading requires a commitment like that? Even if it's a short book, you still want to delve, you know, do deep reading. Deep reading doesn't really depend on the size of the book. It could be even a poem, you know. But deep reading is is something that I think we are losing a little bit in our culture because of yes. the because of the pace, because of the you know the, the the rapid things that go across the screen because of screens in general. Um, we don't have that sort of that ability to sit down. And and you know it's sort of, sort of like um you know we did we did a little bit of Zen meditation you and I right we went to a Zen center and and meditating is wonderful it keeps you calm it it sort of stabilizes things it grounds things but then you go to a retreat <laughs> do you remember those retreats Rob those fuckers were tough they're tough on you on you physically you sit for two you sit for three days. You sit for longer, your knees are hurting, but more than that, more than the physical aspect, is you're in hell mentally, because because your mind resists this inactivity, this this or this I should say, ultra activity, this, this sort of this this paying attention on a uh, on a second by second basis, which is really hard. Yeah, people think usually while you're sitting and meditating, you're just chilling out. No, you're working really hard to do it the right way <laughs> sitting there just breathing normally you're very calm on the outside but internally you're working so same thing with reading books like like anniversaries or or um, um, infinite chest um, you you're working you're sitting there you're, you're you're digesting what you're reading you're spending time with it you're you're, you're you know this there was an article just recently I think in the Guardian about deep reading and they listed things that I, I think was just perfect for for what we're talking about as far as reading um, uh, these big books. So deep reading develops internalized knowledge. We certainly got a lot of that. We're getting a lot of that from anniversaries, right? A lot of knowledge about about Hitler's rise to power, about, a lot of knowledge about the late 60s New York. Uh, you get things like analogical reasoning. You get inference. You get perspective taking. Uh, you get empathy. Uh, critical analysis and generation of insight, all from deep reading. And in order to do deep reading, you do need to just read for hours at a time sometimes, you know, and really get into it. Yes. And the only way to do that is if the book that you're doing and reading it is, is pulling you along and giving you that sort of spark of joy. Like I tried reading uh, Joshua Cohen, you know, the the American writer. Uh, you've heard of him, right? Josh Co Joshua Cohen. Uh, I tried reading Wits, which looked exactly like the kind of book I would enjoy. Big, fat book, uh, written in an inventive style. It's about the last Jews on earth. I'm Jewish, yay. Um, so I really wanted to love this book, and I hated it. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. I didn't get into the style. I didn't get into the ideas. I thought it was moronic. Uh, macaronic. It's just, I just, I, I hate to slam it like that. Maybe I didn't give it enough 
critical reading time, but I just, I really did try and I really didn't like it. So I stopped. I stopped like 50 pages in. Yes. And, and so part of what I want to talk about today is I, I have stopped with anniversaries and I, and I think in my intro, I called it a fabulous book and I'm going to walk that back. I think that was simply, <laughs> simply out of habit. Well, you're going to have um, to now. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I didn't find enough to pull me through this book. And so this is part of what I'm, I'm excited. Let me ask you this. Let me today. ask you this. Where did you stop? So I stopped it again. This, this is, I, I have to, no shame, no again, shame, you know? no shame. Well, well, but this is also what I want to talk about is that, um, I, I know there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a fair amount of folks who have been reading this book in anticipation of this podcast. And so, um, and I know I'm not a professional book reviewer in this capacity, I felt a bit of a shame kind of stopping. So to answer your question, I stopped around page 300 of Anniversaries 1. So in in that sense, I'm, you know, I didn't delve too deeply into this book. But I also have, uh, in my defense, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have some reasons why I felt like this book um, uh there wasn't enough to pull well, me in. Let's, and I, and let's I want to go. Let me let me finish. I want to go back to all the wonderful things that that you said about Zen practice and, and the fact that everyone has this sort of flowery idea of Zen. Oh, it's wonderful. You sit down and it's all you know um, hibiscus tea and and you know uh, wonderful Zen thoughts. But it's hell. But but there is also um, you would also agree that you probably left certain retreats or meditation centers with a with an amazing sense of being clear and grounded mm-hmm. and, and your interactions with people felt very present. I, I was I very... was the best person I ever was when I was yeah. meditating and doing retreats. I, it made me the best person I could possibly be. It was a yes. high point of my personhood. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess I, I've had enough experience reading where I'm just looking at my bookshelf and I'm thinking of uh, the trilogy by the wonderful um, uh, novelist, the Egyptian novelist, Naguib Maufis in his um, Cairo trilogy, which is, you know, the three books collectively is a rather large work. And I, I read that as if, you know, it was a, uh, a blog post or something. I was just, I burned through it and I just loved it. And I, 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 I want to feel that with, with, with from a book, yeah, and yeah, but see, I, see, I, I can't, can't read at this point in my life. I cannot read two thousand words. Um, but the pace of this with, book, Rob, with, is different. The pace, the pacing of this book is very different from the the Egyptian, the the Cairo trilogy. Uh, it it has a different um, time signature almost, and so you have to, even though it's such a huge book, and you want to kind of speed read it and read, just keep going and going. You can't. Well, let's 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 I do mean, this. There's, there's one reviewer who said who said I may I gave myself the goal of reading 500 pages. I'm like, what? <laughs> 500 pages of anniversary a yes. day? I mean, that's that's insanity. That's not reading. That's skimming or well, let, something let me, like let that. Let me do this. Let me say one thing about the book, Roman, and then I want you to explain why people who've listened to our podcast before will recognize that the intro music is different. And so there's a reason for that. And that, that comes from you. So let's just say this before you, you talk about that. So Uwe Johnson, German novelist, um, this book was published originally in, uh, various installments in the early 1970s. So, um, and it was published in English, 
Um, it was uh, a, a, a bigger hit, it's fair to say, in Germany at the time. I think there was a feeling that perhaps the German translation uh, at that time wasn't up to snuff. So this book has been um, republished by the New York Review of Books, uh, by their uh, press. And so if you're not familiar with it, they are so good that if you see one of their books on a bookshelf, I almost guarantee you can pick it up and it's going to mm-hmm. be good. It's oh, yeah. one of very the few good, presses that taste. I can say yes. that about. So part of... So on page 444, there is a typo. (laughs) (laughs) There's one typo I found, and it's on page 444. And and so... Anyway, um, go ahead. Sorry. Before before (coughs) you talk about the the intro music, I'll I'll just say, for anyone who hasn't read the book, the structure is pretty simple, the format in a sense. The the book goes... it, it, It goes from 1967 to 1968, and it is the um, chronicle, in a sense, of a, uh, a German immigrant, uh, um, a woman living in New York City in, in the late 60s. And so she's um, obsessively a reader of the New York Times. And so the book is broken down into, is it every day? During this time period, Roman? Yep. Yeah. So, yes, every so day. It, so you get, you know, August 3rd, 1967. And, and typically the that portion of the book will start with a, this kind of recap of what the character has encountered in the New York Times. And, you know, at the time you have racial unrest and the Vietnam War and the Cold War, et cetera. And so, so you get that. And then you also get the day-to-day life of this German immigrant woman and her daughter, who is quickly becoming Americanized. She's a, uh, an adolescent. But then you also get these memories of she was born in Germany in 1933, so she was a young girl um, during World War II and the rise of Hitler. So you, you, this is the structure of the book. You, you are plowing through this period in American history now at this point, and then you're flashing back to the rise of Hitler, as, as you said, Roman. But you're also, you're immersed in New York City uh, of the late 60s, which is, which is quite interesting. And, and um, New York has had so many changes over the last 50 years that particularly people who know New York well um, will find this fascinating. And so that relates, Roman, to, to why uh, you suggested we, we change the intro music. So what did we hear and why did you kind of choose that? Yeah, Rob, first of all, your voice was a little bit broken up because I think it's a Skype connection issue. I hope hope that my voice is clear to you. You sound um, great. Okay, so your voice is a little bit wonky, but I think it's probably the reception here. But we can still hear, I can still hear you pretty well. Uh, but anyway, so so we decided to choose, you know, I'm a big monk, Thelonious Monk fan, uh, the jazz musician. We usually start with a, a monk tune that Rob chooses. But this time I, I suggest that we start with a, a monk tune called Coming on the Hudson. Yeah, yeah, it's from the 60s, I believe he composed it, so it's the appropriate, um, appropriate time frame. Um, and the reason why I wanted to start with this is because this book is, is such a New York novel. Uh, it's definitely a New York novel from an immigrant's perspective, but nonetheless a New York novel. Um, you really get a sense of the streets 
um, what was happening, especially around Riverside Drive, 96th Street, Broadway. And again, if you're a New Yorker, you know these places, you can relate to them. It's a little bit harder if you're not a New Yorker. And you could just you know, have to imagine them and you don't really have a, a clear sense of of what he's talking about when he's saying, you know, he turned left on Broadway to go to 96th Street or something like that. Um, so what I would suggest actually for readers uh, who are, are loving this book but are not New Yorkers, are not very familiar with New York, is use uh, something like Google Street Map or, you know, Google Earth and actually look up these places that he's talking about because it's really, uh, it really adds to the enjoyment of, of the reading experience. Um, and so it shows this tune because Monk, Thelonious Monk was a, in a way, part of the story because, you know, the, the book talks about the, the racial tensions and, and how Riverside Drive uh, sort of, there's more black people moving in, this tension between the, the old immigrants who, who are living there, the, the Jews, the sort of the, uh, and the, new, the newer people moving in. And so Monk was part of that picture because he you know, became very famous. He ended up being on, on the cover of Time magazine in the 50s, a wonderful jazz musician. So he finally made some money. Uh, and he was able to afford to move to West End Avenue from his little place, which is, uh, by the way, used to be um, Lincoln Center, which is where Lincoln Center is right now. That's where Monk used to live. Um, but he moved to this funky apartment on West End Avenue, not too far away from where this book, Anniversaries, takes place. It's just a street parallel to it, where Riverside Drive, and then you have West End Avenue. And so Monk lived in the neighborhood, pretty much, maybe a little bit further down, but he lived in, you know, in the general neighborhood. And he used to love to walk. He would just walk, usually at night, he would just, you know, just roam the streets of Manhattan, especially in that neighborhood. Um, and... Uh, Marie, who's uh, you know the the little girl in this book, um, she's also a walker. She loves to walk. She loves taking the subway in various places. She's kind of a flaneur, or flaneus, whatever the the, the 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 female version is of a flaneur. Yes. Um, uh, and so they have this kind of weird. Uh, I guess New York also um, kind of asks for it in a way. You, you, New York has to be walked. You kind of want to walk New York. You know, you just want to, it's such a grid and you just want to keep walking and people watching and various buildings. And so Monk, like I said, he used to walk and then he would come come on the Hudson, the river, from all these tall buildings and, and trees and everything. And suddenly you see the river and this tune perfectly reflects that kind of, that feeling like, oh, there is the, there is the Hudson. There it is. Nice. And and we have the Hudson as a character almost in this book as well, or at least you know not a character but as a major part of it because Gassine and Marie live on Riverside Drive, two forty three Riverside Drive by ninety sixth Street, and they they see they can see the river from the windows right. They get there in nineteen sixty one. They look for an apartment. They use the New York Times to look for New York, for the apartment. The New York Times of course becomes a major character in the book as well. Um, but they find this apartment with five windows facing Riverside Park and, and the Hudson. And so I really thought it was appropriate to sort of choose this Thelonious Monk tune to sort of give us a sense of that time period. And also, and also Rob, I, I wanted to talk about black and white and color. I don't know why exactly. Uh, something connected with memories. And, and before I get there, Rob, let me just page 53 of anniversaries early really early on 
the bottom of page 53 was something that I thought was really, really cool. So let me read it right now. Just one short paragraph. The peace of the past that is ours, because we were there, remains concealed in a mystery, sealed shut against Alibaba's magic words, hostile, inapproachable, mute and alluring like a huge gray cat behind a window pane, seen from far below as though with a child's eyes. So this, even though he's writing almost in the moment, and he's having, has, has these daily entries of the, the, the New York Times, your news, what's happening, it is already far removed, of course, at this point. But even then, it was already removed to a certain extent. And I keep thinking of, of, of all those things as in black and white. You know, you see these, the, the footage of New York, let's say, from the 60s. It's not in color, it's in black and white. Uh, the photographs that I have from my childhood back in you know, the Soviet Union, they're black and white. So my, my idea of that time, my, my sort of visual memory of it is black and white. It's not, and then when I moved to Israel in the 70s, in the late 70s, it's suddenly all color. Yeah, but, but anything before that is black and white. So this period of, of 67, 68, in my that's head is black yeah. and white. I, and that's interesting. seeing Monk, there's a documentary, not documentary, there's like footage of Monk walking the streets. Yeah. And it's again, black and white. And we have a lot, of course, the black and white tension between the, the, the blacks and the whites. So it's all kind of this weird... Yeah, a couple of thoughts. Um, I mean, of course, the New York Times, when we think of the pre-digital uh, age, you know, I mean, black black and white, there's the print. And also the fact that, right, it's flashing back, so to speak, to the 30s and 40s in Germany. And so, right, all the footage that you would have seen, you know, the classic kind of World War II footage would be black and white. I, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it's a very personal association um, um for me because there's a lot of the vietnam war uh in, in these you know daily reflect looks at the newspaper um i i've spent quite a time quite a lot of time studying and looking at that period and, and so a lot of the the footage from the vietnam war is in color so for me maybe that that takes me a little bit sort of uh out of that association but that that's um you know, that, that's an interesting association. And then I also, I want to get back to you, what you were talking about as far as Marie uh, being a walker in the city. And, and, and I think you get to the fact that she really takes possession of Manhattan as her city. At, at a certain point, it reveals she's embarrassed to uh, reveal to her classmates at this Catholic school that she was born in Dusseldorf, right? And so it's a classic American immigrant story where, where, you know, the younger immigrant really wants to um, kind of pass uh, as an American child, right? Doesn't want any of that um, association uh, with the old world, right? With their parents, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I think of us growing up in suburban Boston, and, and of course, you, you had immigrant parents, you were an immigrant, but you were also young enough that y you started to become American fairly quickly. And it was also just your orientation. You, you were hungry. Yeah, yeah, I guess my experience is kind of, it's kind of parallels yeah. uh, Marie's a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. arrives when she's four and I was much yeah. older. I was like uh, 13. But yeah, it's, it, I can definitely see the parallel. I mean, you're right. It's an immigrant yeah. novel. And I think, in a um, lot of and, and also just to touch upon, you know, her walking the city and kind of possessing it in that sense. I don't know if you caught the line. I think they go to London. And so they're taking the underground in London, and Marie is is con 
constantly comparing the London Underground to the New York subway. And she keeps saying, well, this is different than my subway, you know. And, and so she really – the subway became hers. And, and when I lived in Boston, I felt as if the, the T, as it was called in Boston, was – I mean, it was I was so intimate with, you know, the red line and the green line. And uh, it was very personal to me. So that that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I'll tell you, I, I had a little a little a little, uh, you know, case of goosebumps. Um, I don't know if you got to that point, um, but he talks about how the New York subway system changed. Um, there was a one day when they changed from the IRT system to the new hmm. um, numbered and lettered system. Which I'm so familiar with, you know, I take the one train, take the two train, take the, you know, take the A train. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, he talks about how it's changed and, and how Marie's like, oh, I have to go explore. And she explores and she ends up in Queens Plaza, which is, you oh, know, cool. a stone's throw away from here. Um, so it's, it's, again, this is why, this is part of the reason why I kept on, I, I, I kept on getting these little sparks of joy because, and maybe why you didn't, because it's it, it's it's talking about my city. I live here, you know. Same same thing with with um, Infinite Jest. Remember, we're reading that we're freaking living around the corner from some of the action. We were living right there, and it made yeah. such a connection to, with us. And so here with New York, it's a total connection with me. Um, I think New Yorkers in general will connect more with this book than yeah, anybody and, else. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. So, um, so I want to throw out a few reasons why. I stopped reading this book, which I, which I think is, you know, for me, the central, the central fact of this experience. And I also didn't read any of the reviews. I, I'm on Twitter, as people know, um, but I, and I, so I, I clearly got the sense that people were, you know, going gaga over this book. I think that's fair to say. So here's, here's sort of what, what I kind of experienced, and, and maybe this is worth thinking about, is, I mean, I think the novel is trying to work by being a novel of accumulation, right? It's, there, there's, there's accumulated waves coming at you. And again, there are sort of like three narratives. There's New York Times as character with what's happening in America. There's Gessen's reflections back on, you know, uh, Third Reich Germany. Yeah. And, and then there's also right, right, um, yeah. what's going on in present day New York at the time. And, and so what I, what I kept finding is that Every day we would have to start with this, this summary or this, this quick reflection, not even a reflection, but almost like a report on today, you know, 358 Marines were killed uh, near the DMZ in Vietnam. In Providence, Rhode Island, uh, you know, 1,000 African-Americans protested injustices and the police, blah, blah, blah. So, so a couple of things is after a while that um, – Part, that structural aspect of the novel started to feel a burden to me. Like, yes. So I started to feel really? like, like I get it. This is an interesting sort of um, structural device. And it, it, it's interesting in the sense that, like, I mean, one thing I did get from it is that, you know, there's a lot of social unrest in the United States today. So it was interesting to see that, uh, you know, there was, I mean, I know there there were dire there was consequences the going on there, in the late yeah. '60s, but but I'm also thinking, what would it be like to have read this in 1972 as an American when all of this stuff is very fresh? I I bet it would be even even more of a burden because I started feeling like, okay, I get it. 
So every day you're going to you're going to immerse me in New York Times headlines. Okay, that's an interesting concept. Times yeah, headlines. but but it's okay, it's not just the headlines, Rob. No, it isn't. But I mean, it's not just the headlines. It's it how it's how he chooses them, which aspects of them is he is he poking fun at? Where is the little bit of because uh, remember it's anti times, anti times, right? He's he's basically making the New York Times a character. Yes. It's a person in a way. Um, it's not a father figure. He says so explicitly, it's an ant. And why is it an ant figure? Is because when she says something good, she feels the need to explain it. So, so he pokes fun at the New York Times. He uses the headlines, but he also subverts them a little bit. Um, there's a little, there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, sort of uh, subtext. Um, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, to me, every time we would start a new day in the book and there would be something from the New York Times, it felt almost comforting. It's like a structural thing that like, oh, it's a grounding thing. Here we go again. It's like, um, it's like um, a return on a typewriter or something that like you go to the next line. He, so, he, you know, so yeah, I, I, I agree in a sense. But what I started to feel, and as somebody who has written a bit of prose myself, a little bit of fiction, is I realized how useful that would be. You, you know what this felt like? It felt like a novelist who had stories he wanted to tell. And the prime story he wanted to tell is what it was like to look at a family as, you know, the political situation in in 1930s Germany deteriorated, right? So that's interesting. I wanted to focus on that. I also thought the the other really gem here that could be developed was Marie. Like I I I became very interested in Marie in her her journey into adolescence. Yeah. And so I started to feel like the the author wanted to slow everything down. He wanted to walk me through this. And I'm not a plot-driven reader. Uh, quite the opposite. I'm a Proustian, right? But I quickly started to feel like you are throwing a lot of barriers in my way. And Although there are moments where the prose is quite interesting, you you just quoted a, a, a paragraph. I started feeling like you are not giving me enough reasons to complete a two thousand page novel. I ah see, I completely disagree, Rob, because I think those those speed bumps, as you call them, so to speak, the slowing down, they're actually layers of of of, of detail that are that resonate across time, across the late 60s New York scene and American scene to the early 30s, mid-30s, and and later 30s uh, German scene. And there's so many um, echoes and parallels. There's one point where Marie and Gesine, and again, by the way, pardon all the horrible, I'm surely horrible uh, German pronunciations that we have. We, we probably are mispronouncing things, but just forget about that and just concentrate on the characters so they have this game of like is that memory your memory is that memory my memory and they keep score it's kind of a fun thing um but what i what i'm getting this is this um daily accumulation of these kinds of details and what you get there is um like you know like a dark room when you develop photographs i don't know if people know uh, but i used to go to my dad's my dad used to have this um he used to teach a class in russia uh, that wasn't even allowed. It was a. It's called Kultura. 
meaning it's like a not allowed job type of deal, kind of job on the side. To make extra money, he would he would teach this photography class in some cultural center. And I would hang out there because it was cool because I had a dark room. And you, I would see these photographs being developed. And you, you know, you... You, you put it in this fluid and you slowly start noticing the details coming out very slowly as the fluid works its magic in the dark room and and that's exactly the feeling I'm getting from this book I little details are coming in here and there's a more little detail and they all start making sense as one picture because Marie and Cassine and then Lisbeth which is Marie Cassine's mother who commits suicide spoiler alert um, <laughs> but she she also, you know, she she lives in Germany. She she has this young child, you know, Gesine, who's born there. Um, you know, they the husband kind of moves to they, they want to move to England. They live in England. They're gonna go back to have this child, and you know, there's a there's a whole story about backstory of Richmond, England, and their life there. Uh, but they go back to Germany, and and as 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 Hitler rises, and and Elizabeth is trying to deal with this this. How do we, how do we live in a world where you know you're supporting war by just building furniture because you're building furniture for these Nazis and and then Marie has these questions about how do we, how do we how do we live with this Vietnam War going on in the background? Uh, are we are we culpable? Are we are we guilty by living in this country, our adopted country? Because now we live here. We are we supporting the war because we live here? And so, and then this, this this game that they play, where they're thinking, "Is this your memory? Is this my memory?" It goes back to Elizabeth. So you have this triple uh, doubling. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the, the three women, the three generations of women, and they're kind of this kind of a fractal nature of history. You know, of this, they kind of resemble each other, but they're distinct characters. But they they have a lot of things in common, like this dealing with this guilt about war. I mean. Rob, this is, is a very contemporary question. We live in this country too. Are, are we or or cell phones? You know, you use a, we're using a cell phone right now, right? We're using this computer. Some kid in the sweatshop made a part of this computer. Are we? Are we? Yeah. How do we deal with this guilt? Uh, yeah. Do we even but think you, about it? We don't usually. Look, look, but you you you, know, you make really you make good that. points. But but here's again, I'm going to counter some of it with a few thoughts. So, so one of it is, if this book was so important, it wouldn't have been out of, uh, it, would, it, it would have remained in print in the English-speaking world during the last 50 years. So I think that's worth examining. And, and perhaps, perhaps, well, let me just, uh, I'm just gonna, I don't know about that, Rob. I'm going to throw that out. I, I think but, that's but a the weak other argument. thing is, is again, um, I really feel like the Daily New York Times insertion, and, and again, you're right, it isn't simply headlines, I'm, I'm just using that as shorthand. It, I really feel like it served the writer more than the reader, and it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a shtick. Now, I, I might be biased in the fact that, no, that, I'm, I completely that I'm disagree. Completely pretty disagree. immersed in American history, so there weren't really revelations for me and, and perhaps you know for for some folks um, this is really fascinating to see you know the social tensions the 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 immoral war well remember the characters well, are well, living and those that's my social s- tensions they have they have the 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 the, 
the guy who fixes things in the right. building. They're but super I, I would still, black. Uh, the but, neighbor, look, I, down, you know. But I would still argue dealing with this. that, um, yes, are there parallels between what was happening in the late 60s and, you know, German society? Yes, but hum, humans never change. So I would argue that a very good novelist could make all sorts of comparisons between two points in time. I mean, to quote the oldest literary work on the planet, the Torah, there is nothing new under the sun. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really feel like what this novel needed was an editor to come in and to really push this writer around and say, there are some amazing storylines here you are a gargantuan talent, but I feel like you as a writer, as an artist, have clung to this structure. And I'm sure it's comforting to you and, and it provides a certain framework for the reader, but I think the editor could have pushed Mr. Johnson to, to, to trim, to reimagine this book. So I, after a while, I felt like, again, I used the word shtick, that I was suffering a little bit because of. Really, I mean, you didn't find the entries funny and and and, and illuminate. I mean, I know you, I know you know American history much more than I do, but I, I just found the, the the little details about Brezhnev, about you know Stalin's daughter. Um, you know, we forget these things nowadays, but but as they were happening, they they felt very different, and I think. The, the inclusion of these these uh, stories from the New York Times, and not just the inclusion of the stories, but the, of the way he handles them, is crucial. It's crucial for this uh, this 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 view of of right. what was actually happening. Right. But it's a fiction book. Yeah, you know, it's a fiction book that gives us more truth about reality than than actual right. New York Times and reports. Totally right. Do you know what I'm saying? And, so and, it's it's. I, I know. So I completely disagree with you, man. I, I, I really think it's it's it holds the book together. It gives it depth. Uh, it gives us re- resonance to today. Um, it certainly is a, a a a huge. I mean, you know, with the attack on the media nowadays, this is a huge reminder of why it's important to have these institutions uh, like the New York Times, as as flawed T- as it totally. is. Totally, and 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 I I would just argue that. Uh, uh, as you point out, it is fiction. And I think that um, we don't necessarily need those particular insights or re- revelations in a novel. And, and certainly a novel that it asks so much of us. And so here, here's sort of my, the second thing that I, I've been thinking about is, I think on some level, it, for some reason, as I'm reading this, it made me think a little bit of um, my struggle, the the recent series of novels by Carl Ove Nosgaard, who's from, is it, is it Norway? Is uh-huh. he a Norwegian writer? Yeah. I so, believe he's Norwegian. Um, I think yeah, I believe so. in a certain way, that's also a novel of like accumulation, right? He, he piles on these details. But I think what is stronger about Nosgaard's book is that he, he has a much tighter focus. I mean, an amazingly tight focus, right? The minutia of his own life. And there, there is a um, an exhaustion factor with that book. I, I read the first two volumes and enjoyed them, but I think as we've talked about, it was like, okay, I get it, <laughs> that's enough. Um, but, but I also think he, he's 
doing what I call, he was trying to do, and I think Johnson was trying to do this too, I call this the everything novel. I, I contend that every novelist has this dream or aspiration, or at least many of them. And I think most readers, if we can really deeply reflect, we are hoping one day to read the everything novel, the novel that simply we we read it and we say, "Aha!" Well, we I mean, it. life has been captured. Well, I mean, life the, has been captured. Yes, yes, it's I, called Finnegan's Wake, Rob. It's called Finnegan's Wake. It's already no. been done. Let's move on. <laughs> yes, but, but, Finnegan's Wake is it. Finnegan's Wake encapsulates I, I everything. I won't argue everything, with including you, itself. What I would argue with you is that this goes back to structure, structuring the piece of art. That that Joyce is is such a genius, is so beyond the culture that it's still inaccessible to even highly literate people. So so. So that's what makes that it might be the everything novel from the artist's perspective, but um, even highly literate readers are intimidated and and well, are intimidated. Rob, it's called art. It's called art for a reason. It's not. It's not uh, junk. It's not newspapers. It's not yeah. my lamp. It's art, and art has artifice in it. It's it's got this this elegance to it. Uh, art is shapely, mind is shapely, right? Ginsburg, uh, or is it mind is shapely, art is shapely? But either way, it it's, it follows this whatever this ineffable thing that we have about our human existence, and it's got beauty um, and depth and understanding, and it's called art. In our case, literary art. Um, so why isn't just reading the newspaper art? Well, it isn't. But if you put it in anniversaries and you you twist it. You put it this way, you poke fun at it, you, you argue with it, you talk to it, you make it part of your story, then it becomes art. Now, art has, you know, it has some sort of a, a structure. It has to have some sort of a structure. It's, it is a something. Um, or like, like Beckett said about Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, he said it's not about yeah. something, it is that something. Yeah. Um, so that's why that book is special because yeah. most books are about something, right? Uh, very few books are are artistic that way. And Finnegan's Wake, in my mind, is the pinnacle of that, whatever that is. Um, but I think anniversaries Johnson's here he uh, he approaches that because it's it is a wonderful crystalline structure. It has that. It gives me that joy of reading. It's not hard to read, like 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 Finnegan's Wake, for instance. It, though that's a ton of references. Um, and like I said, it, it develops this picture. It's a novel within a novel, right? You have this, the, the story of the 1930s um, Mecklenburg mm -hmm. in northeast Germany, which is a, a kind of a Baltic state. It's uh, right by the, by the Baltic Sea that borders Poland. You have uh, this weird foreigner from Austria taking over. His name is Adolf Hitler. It causes all kinds of mayhem in the town, in the local town, and with the people. Um, there's various reactions. It's all in this book. And then we, we have this continuation of this person who was born during that time, who's now moved to America and has a similar experience with her daughter. And, and almost like, again, uh, uh, not, not a, it's not a mirror reflection of, of 1930s uh, 
uh, Germany, but it's 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 some sort of reflection, sort of a fractal shard uh, of of the of the thirties. It's now happening in the sixties in New York or in America, and then and then makes me wonder. Well, well, we're, maybe we are another shard here in two thousand, the late two thousand, you know, uh, teens in in America again, in the whole world as global, basically. And so it's really it just it it mind expanding. Uh, I I I want this book to be longer. Wow. Yeah. I don't want it to be I'm... shorter. I'm wow. enjoying yeah. the. I mean the 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 incredible. Um, before I forget, I want to point out the incredible uh, translation feat um, by Mr. Searle. The way he translates uh, uh, Plattdeutsch, which is a the you know the sort of the local dialect of um, Mecklenburg, um, the sort of this low German. Um, very specific kind of dialect that, that's very specific to that region, um, but he translates it as you know without any uh, as English without um, apostrophes. It's kind of like this weird English that you immediately recognize. Oh, that's that, that means they're speaking in their in their local dialect. Uh, that was a brilliant touch, by the way, uh, for the, from the translator. And so I, I get this not just not just. Uh, you know, not just one part of the world, but I get this totality, which is something I get from Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, this whole world that's also my world. I'm reflected in it. I'm an immigrant. I'm a New Yorker. I've moved countries. I spoke, I spoke different languages. Um, maybe but, that's why you're not but, but relating look, you, to it as much. I don't know, but, but I really relate to this more book. more than anyone you know? would know that uh, a, a great work of art does not depend on the reader relating per details of their personal biography. No, absolutely not. Like, and that's why that's why I'm a I'm a I'm a libertarian. I don't know. I'm an anarchist as far as as far as literary. You, you love Joyce. Look, the the ultimate like uh, Irish ca Catholic kind of guy. You have no personal connection to that, but you are you are the most devout Joycean I've ever met, and, and as authentic a Joycean as you will meet. Well, yes, 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 but you know, but the better Joycean than I am. I'm not a very good Joycean, which makes you a good Joycean. Anyway, I strive to be a, good, a better Joycean. <laughs> <laughs> but my 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 point is that look, I I I all my talk about art and how how wonderful it is. I'm very very uh, individualistic about about reading experiences. I don't. I think if if you pick up a book and it doesn't go. There are two ways to approach this not going. This there's uh, there's you can take a look around and see what other people are saying about it and say, well, you know, it seems to be universally loved, and I'm not really into it. I, I the, you have two options. You can forget about it and move on to something that you're more interested in, or you can think of it this way, which has guided me quite well throughout my life. Is yeah. it's just not the oh, right I'm, time. I'm, I, I think that's book, possible. Oh, I, um, you know. But like I said, I because the book is so large, and I think that is a worthy topic, the the actual size. I mean, this is one reason that, um, you know, this reputation that Proust is difficult and that A la recherche du temps perdu in search of lost time is somehow, you know, inaccessible, et cetera. This is simply because it's seven volumes. This is, so, so the actual length it has really, impacted his reputation, how people think about it. So I think that's worth talking about with this book. And I think when you come up with really, really long books, I can't help but thinking, as you, as you said, it's, it's art, it's artifice. Someone 
piece this together. Someone thought about structure. And so with a really, really long book, um, you, you, you have to think more critically and question more about the structural choices that were made and because of the length of the book. Like with, with uh, My Struggle in Nosgard, like, I, what is it, seven volumes? So, so you know, um, he, he made these kind of like structural choices in how he attacked the material, you know what I mean? This isn't a diary or anything or some like minute-by-minute you know, journal. So, um, you, you know, I, I, I'm willing to concede that I, I've, you know, I've had a very, very busy, uh, professional life in December. You know, I work. I, I, Rob, I think, I really think um, that that's, that's it. I mean, it, it, all of my life, whenever I've tried, though I've tried with wits, Joshua yeah. Cohen's book, as he gave us an example, I tried reading it a yeah. different yeah. time. It still didn't. I go. mean, look, so, I'm, I'm not so gonna, I'm not gonna so have a bonfire in my front yard and, you know, burn these books but but you know i'm saying this there's, there's something to say about 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 i mean there you know we, we all struggle with this weird notion of what's good in art what is good is there such a thing as an objective objectively good novel that that should be praised by everyone and those who don't praise it are idiots i i don't really think so at the same time i don't think yeah, it's everybody's choice you, you know of declaring whatever great art is I don't think of that either. It's somewhere. It's it's a shifting thing that's always shifting between one pole to the next pole. There is something objective, but it's not fully objective, and it's something subjective, look, look, but it's not you, fully subjective. What I would so love to the, do, I I wish you, know, I wish you and I had the cultural power to to pick up a phone, and I would love to get the old Yale, uh, Brooklyn curmudgeon Harold Bloom. <laughs> Harold Bloom. I'd like to say Harold Bloom. I'd like to say yes. Does this book? You know, fit into the Western Canyon, and and he 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 will happily include very contemporary books into his canon. Um, but of course, right, he has this. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the guy, he has this gigantic uh, uh, personal archival. I mean, talk about someone who's read everything. Right. So, I, you know, I would love to have someone like that. You know, uh, where does this book fit? You know, does this. Um, yeah, I, I, I inst- instead of the well, the... you know, in the absence of that. So what do we do in the absence of that, Rob? That's the question. What do we do in the absence? Like I remember, I remember when George Carlin died, right? And George Carlin and people like Robert Antle Wilson, they died around this, you know, close to the same time. They, for me, they were cultural guide yes. guide people. They they guided me as far as what's what's happening in the culture, what's to pay, what to pay attention to, what to make fun of. I mean, obviously, I didn't follow them like a robot, totally. but you know, they they were guides. Um, and so when when they're gone, I was suddenly a little, a little bit in the wilderness, you know, and I had to kind of grow up and sort of, well, I'm going to make my own decisions about what's happening in the culture, and, you know. I mean, obviously, I'm exaggerating, but you know, basically, it was kind of something like that. Um, and so that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. In the absence of cultural doyens like um, like Harold Bloom. In the absence of this person saying, I know everything and this is good and this is bad, or, you know, obviously caricaturing it, but something, in the absence of I, something like that, yeah, what do we do? I, I would argue that, that I, what you, know, you and I are doing with, in a tiny, tiny way with this podcast is this is the cultural conversation, right? Uh, we are part of it. And so mm. the, this book's reputation going forward is, is being forged. It's being forged 
on the pages of the New York Times Book Review. It's being forged in the literary Twittersphere. It's being forged by academics, being forged by uh, podcasters like you and I. So I think it's, uh, you know, we're in the we're in the cake mix uh, as we speak. Well, here's another here's another great example. Uh, speaking of big books, I, I can't believe I didn't mention it earlier. One of my other favorite writers, William Gaddis, his first book, The Recognitions, uh, big monster of a book, what, yeah, nine, eight, yeah, thousand pages, something like that. It's huge. Um, and it's about the, the, the village in the early heydays of the village and the art scene. Uh, it's about forgery. It's about art. What does it mean? You know, it's exactly about what we're talking about in a sense. Uh, but it's also a little bit different. It's dealing with fakery and, and, and artifice in that sense. Um, but when it came out, it was universally panned. The critics hated it. Obviously, they, maybe some of them, most of them didn't read it because it's such a big book and it's dense. Um, and there was a wonderful retort by this guy, Jack Green, uh, in a pamphlet. He actually published a pamphlet called Fire the Bastards, where he critiques the critics of the book. Um, but it had a very similar sort of like um, it, it arrived sort of dead on the on arrival type of deal. It, it it never made it very far in the cultural conversation. But slowly but surely, people start coming out. I mean, this was obviously pre podcast days, pre digital. But people like uh, you know David Markson spoke up. Uh, this guy Jack Green uh, published it and would talk to anybody about it, and he just like you know kept on sort of pushing it. And slowly but surely, I mean, it took it took Gaddis what another twenty years to write a second book or something like that, because he was almost discouraged uh, from writing at all. Which luckily that didn't happen, um, because his second book is a is all of his books are masterpieces. Uh, J.R. was the second book, I believe. Uh, but um, it, it it slowly but surely rose and rose, and now we have people like uh, bloggers like Biblioclept, uh, who has wonderful posts on it. On the recognitions, um, uh, you know he, he. So it's it's it sort of came back. It came back with a vengeance. Of course, it didn't hurt that Gaddis kept publishing, even though it was twenty years apart here and there. But you know, with Jr. and a frolic of his own, and these books that you know won the National Book Awards, and he became huge, even though almost nobody reads Gaddis nowadays. What the hell? I don't understand that exactly. But y- yeah. You know, uh, so. Gaddis had the advantage of of writing in English and to an English speaking audience. This is a translation. It had to wait because it's such a massive project, um, and of course something is always lost in translation. Um, so it's a bit of a different beast. But uh, I I really I I think Rob, this book will live on, man, because I'm I'm enjoying it so much. I don't want it to end. I I, I I'm reading it slowly. I'm savoring it. I'm I'm getting flashes in my head as I'm reading it. I'm getting all kinds of good nice. feelings in my tummy, you know, uh, <laughs> as yeah. I'm reading it. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. Um, again, not in the sense, not on the prose level, yeah. because this is a translation, as as fine a translation as as, as it is. It's a, it's a, it's relatively easy to read. Uh, it doesn't have that the, the complexity that I like in, in English prose. Um, it doesn't have that sort of that that richness, that creaminess. Um, but it's still pretty dense and, and, and still gives you a lot of satisfaction reading it. Uh, but it's really the ideas and the structure, which you don't appreciate, but I do. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it lends it, it gives it sort of forward momentum um, and grounds it in sort of a, a, 
the characters' daily lives. Um, and I can't wait for volume two. Frankly, um, dude, you know? I, I'm 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 jealous. Um, you know that's that that happens. Um, and well, I'm jealous of your Proust experience because yeah. I had and a very so different think, Proust experience. Yeah. yeah, again, a universally recognized book, and I'm reading yeah. it. I'm falling and, asleep. And so, what the fuck. I, I think you know? there is a combination of I think as you put it beautifully that um, I I think we can mostly agree on on the important books. And, and generally, those are the books that will continue to, to sort of just, they will not die. I mean, look at look at Melville and Moby Dick. Dick. That book disappeared. Um, mm-hmm. Some academics said, hey, this is worth a second look. And when people took a second look, they went crazy. Hey, Bach, of course. Bach disappeared. Bach would have, would have, would have never been around if, if it wasn't right. for Mendelssohn saying, hey, wait a second. Who was this guy? So, um, Let's so I, I think the real, um, you know, you know? 50 years from now, will this book, uh, will it still be, I mean, look, we still, there's a certain core of Germans, German language books that um, in the Western world or in the English speaking world, we still know are touchstones, you know, books by Thomas Mann, um, you know, Gunter Grass, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever they are. Yeah. I don't, did you, you probably didn't get to it. There's a funny, there's a funny, um, <laughs> funny typo. In the New York Times, that 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 um, it's in the book that he mentions oh, really? Gunther Glass. The Anti Times mentions the the uh, a German novelist <laughs> Gunther Glass, who's got nothing to do with J.D. Salinger's Glass family. That's, that's it's, fantastic. It's great. I love it. So yeah, I don't know, dude. I, I think um, uh, it's it's a whole another podcast. You know, to to sort of mention one last thing as you were talking that made me think of. Um, there was this amazing uh, this writer that came out of nowhere in the mid twentieth century, uh, Harold Brodkey. He was a, a Jewish American writer from St. Louis, and he mm-hmm. started writing these short stories in the New Yorker, um, and people went crazy. And, and um, if you read some of these short stories, um, let's see, one of the collections was called First Love and Other Sto- Other Sorrows, and then there was a um, another collection of short stories called Stories in an Almost Classical Mode. And when I first encountered these, I was like. I couldn't believe it. They are they the stories are stories are amazing, right? They are as amazing. perfect. Uh, they are like crystal vases. They are so perfect, and so yes. Yeah, so but then the novel, I mean, the novel, the so runaway you know soul. This, and, it was horrible. And so there was this horrible. like buildup of <laughs> yes. like we hear he's writing a novel. We we think it's going to be better than In Search of Lost Time. Like like this could be again what I like to call the everything novel. The novel that seems to just, you know, capture it all. And it was published in 1991, The Runaway Soul, and it was atrocious. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not I'm not comparing that now, novel. Now, to was it atrocious? Novel. Rob, Rob, but wait, wait, you, I mean, just to, to sort of continue to extend our discussion to this book, was it really atrocious? I mean... Well, in 50 years, some reader, like a Mendelssohn type of reader, is going to say, wait a second, you guys, you fucked up. You missed all this um, incredible it, stuff in this book. It, I mean, is that possible? I, I don't think so. So so you're, you're, you're oh, you're but, questioning whether I don't it, know. Uh, well, I'm just, I, like what we were just talking about, right? Rediscovering our books that, that were universally panned and then suddenly you're like, wait a second. No, it's a great book. It's, anything's so, possible. I mean, I, I don't think so. Because I I tried reading The Runaway Soul, and but I mean I'm not you know God, so I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, 
I don't. I, I don't know. I I don't want to leave too much room for for anarchy and chaos like that because then we have we have nothing yeah. to to hold on to. No no guideposts, nothing. But but uh, I I just I I I doubt is my friend. I I love doubt, so I I will keep doubt as my friend, and yeah. not dude, be so dude, sure I'll, about I'll, anything. I I want to say one thing which <laughs> which I I want to inform you of, but I think maybe useful to people who listen in. Um, and we're going really long on our podcast, but I don't care. I'm having fun. Um, on 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 Friday, I went to I went to Powell's and I went to see a reading, and it was the um, uh, National Book Award winning novelist, Chinese born, now American guy, Ha Jin. And so, so dude, he he wrote oh, yeah. um, a biography of uh, Li Bai Li Po, and I know that's a f- a favorite of yours. Oh and wow. So, so apparently, dude, this yes. is one of the, f- the only full-length biographies that have ever been uh, done in the English-speaking world of, of Li Bai. Yeah. And- really? Because Li, Li Po is, is like a, a favorite poet of a lot of American yeah. writers. Bukowski loved him because he was you know, the big on drinking wine poems. That totally. Wine and singing to the moon. And of course, of course his uh, wonderful apocryphal... Uh, death story. I don't know if you know about this story. He was, you know, he was doing his usual thing. He was in a boat in the middle of a lake, getting drunk and composing <laughs> poems to the moon. And then he tries to tries to kiss the reflection of the moon in the water wow. and drowns. I mean, it's very wonderfully poetic kind of ending. So, to so, so there it is. Dude. I, guess, I guess you know his his American publisher was like, "Look, we want you to write a slim, brand new book. He, he's on his speaking out? tour, so um, he." You know, and he, um, you know, he, he, I guess he can't go back to China for political reasons. So, like, he had his his niece go to, mm. like, the various, you know, uh, Chinese libraries uh, to get archival material. But, um, you know, he, he also was able to translate all the, the oh, poems himself. So all the poems in the book are Ha Jin's translation. And, and he was reading, uh, he would read the poems in Chinese and then also in English. So it was quite lovely and really interesting. And um, uh, what a, I haven't read any of his fiction, um, but I was really impressed at the seriousness. And he really explained, you know, uh, how he approached the project, how he put together the materials. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I can't, I'm going to, so, I'm going to definitely um, get that book because I, I, and, and I so, love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, he is a fiction writer, so he, he brought a really, uh, a narrative prose centric approach to this biography. So right. I, I, I would encourage anyone who's listening, oh, if, I can't if that wait. interests you to, to check out. Yes. And you know what, speaking of, uh, speaking of that, uh, there's a years and decades ago, um, a writer yeah. named Lin Yutang who was very, very popular um, in America, actually, because he wrote this book called The Importance of Living, which is still in print in after, yes. like, what, 100 years or something? Um, but he he also wrote a, a quite a quite a nice biography of a, another Chinese poet. Um, um, oh, my God. I'm Cheng, blanking Cheng on his Su? name right now. No. It's, called the Gay Ge- it's called The Gay Genius is the title of the book, The, the Happy Genius, The Gay Genius. Um, and it's Su Tang Po. Su Tang Po is the poet, another wonderful uh, ancient Chinese poet. Um, so, and and that's one of the few biographies of Chinese poets that I that I've read in English like that, and really enjoyed it. And so I'm so happy yeah. that you've brought this to my attention because I am definitely picking this book up 
um because i'm a big big fan of those those old yeah. chinese poets they're like my friends i, yeah, I feel so, very close so to for them. readers it's it's um, ha jin h-a and then j as in jim i-n and and the and the poet is um mm. Li Po, which is L-I-P-O. Yeah, it's, it's pronounced with yeah, a B, I believe, yeah. Li Bo, but whatever. So, so we should probably wrap it up, yeah. dude. We've, we've, we've gone over an hour, which is, I think, awesome. Uh, probably our, our... Uh, I can just keep talking, man. I think, I think I'm the, missing the last I know. podcast. Maybe you want to just so, <laughs> keep um, talking. <laughs> so, so that's it. And, and I, again, I think it was a, health, a healthy disagreement on that. I, 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 I'd be really curious, you know, I know there was some folks reading this and looking forward to listening in to our thoughts. So, yeah, yeah we'd love to hear comments. If you guys, uh, please uh, let us know and on Twitter. Yeah, I guess that's the and, only and way. So, really. um, <laughs> Roman is at Zenju on Twitter and I'm uh, at Robert Fay one. Oh, Rob, before we go, just one last thing. He uh, is something my wife pointed out that we should ask uh uh, with you know, the, the nice people who listen to us. That if you do like what you're hearing, can you please uh, give us a review on iTunes or or SoundCloud, one of yeah. those platforms, or whoever, where however you can manage it. Uh, we would love a review. Um, the more people review, of course, the the more people kind of pay attention to us, and uh, hopefully uh, they like what we have to totally. say. So, so that's it, uh, Roman. Thanks yep. for. I know you. You obviously your voice is 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 uh, hurting a bit. So thanks for hanging in there. And um, you know, fun to talk to you again. And and uh, look forward to our next recording. Absolutely, man. Okay, man. Till next time, See man. You later. Bye, bye. Good talking to you.